Hi, I'm Steve Addison and this is the Movements Podcast, the podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Well, today we're going to talk to a practitioner who we'll call Les, and we're going to talk about what it takes to get to no place left. Les, how, how did you get started in this game of pursuing movements of disciples and churches? There's two factors in my life. Uh, one was actually my grandfather, uh, who saw a movement of God uh, in uh, in East Africa and Tanzania, and uh, he was uh, a missionary there uh, back from uh, the 70s through the 80s, and uh, an early movement uh, where they the valley went from uh, a handful of 10, 12 believers, and then uh, by the time his ministry was finished and he was leaving, there were about a half a million in, in the valley where he was. And so seeing those things, I think, prepared my heart for uh, being able to have uh, faith by sight in some ways of seeing people raised from the dead, seeing thousands come to faith uh, in a short period of time. Uh, so that when it, it came my time to step into the field in North Africa, uh, into the harvest fields there, uh, God had already done that work in my childhood as I'd been able to observe my grandfather's um, ministry and work uh, and seeing God's mighty movement of his spirit uh, in a place that would have been very dark, uh, full of uh, the occult and witch doctors and just um, demonic presence, uh, all kinds of practices that would have just been uh, prior to that movement, uh, just been rampant in that uh, that valley where he was working. But I think another, another thing was coming to the field, just, uh, we arrived on the field in 2006, uh, having done some work, uh, in church planting in the U S but, uh, recognizing that, that, that what we saw in planting a church with multiple small groups in a, in a city in North America was, not adequate to even keep up with population growth <laughs> and just the stark reality of the people group that we were uh, pursuing a movement amongst was 9 million. Uh, and uh, at least the dialect we were working with was 9 million. And it was just in, a, in an area, the size of the state of Maine uh, in North America, uh, size of, of England, uh, in the UK. So it would have just been, it was just absolutely overwhelming to think, okay, how are we going to see these people reached? And I think that desperation uh, caused us uh, to just fall on our knees, uh, just daily praying and praying and praying. So that by the time we were 18 months in to our time there, having gotten language and uh, a culture acquisition, we uh, we went to a training uh, who was the, the training was done by somebody who had been trained by Bill Smith and Steve Smith uh, in the Singapore Training Center. Um, both of the 
the training leaders had been trained there. And we came in and it was, uh, we were our first studying Lucan. And at the same time, uh, Allison, my wife and I were in our Bible reading, we were reading John 4. And so John 4 and Luke 10, those two harvest fields uh, passages, praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. And then uh, John 4, you say four months and then the harvest, but I say the harvest is white right now. And it just, it's like the Holy Spirit enlivened our hearts to know that we were stepping into a harvest season. So that the rest of the training, we were just, uh, we felt like we were feasting, uh, just taking in all of the, the th- things that we were we needed to learn uh, and really coming up with plans that we could immediately implement. And our commitment was uh, we had been doing uh, sort of a tea time Bible, uh, chronological Bible storying set for about 18 months with a, a group of five to eight people. And so we made a commitment uh, that we would do we would share the, the complete gospel, which we hadn't gotten to in 18 months of chronological sharing, uh, within 24 hours of returning to our field from the training. And we did that. We called together these five that we felt like were the ones that we wanted to uh, share the gospel with first. And we shared it in a creation to Christ, about a 10-minute presentation of the gospel. And uh, all of them said that they wanted to enter into covenant to follow Jesus Christ and him only. And I, I said, just let me make sure that you understand this. <laughs> and so I start sharing, I share the whole thing over again. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we, we, we want to. So uh, what do we need to do? And I said, well, we need to pray a prayer. And, and uh they said, well, since this is a covenant prayer, shouldn't we stand and lay our hands open so that we can make a proper covenant? And I said, oh, yes. So already they were teaching me enculturation. They were teaching me how to indigenize it. And I think that was one thing that immediately God in his mercy began teaching us is to immediately open our eyes and trust that our nationals, whether they're brand new believers in the next moments, or they're people that are are walking alongside us for years uh, in the movement, that we need to trust them uh, and trust the Holy Spirit in them to, to teach us how we need to set patterns. Um, I think the the other thing that God taught us uh, very quickly was we led them through the covenant prayer. Uh, and then the other, the other thing was I said, so, and in the language that we were working in, there's a lot of ways to equivocate. <laughs> and so I said, if it's possible, maybe if you're able to, if it's, not too uh, too hard for you. Would you be willing to share with maybe one or two people this week? As and 
the least educated woman in the room said, I can already think of five or 10. Is it okay if I share with more? And the Holy Spirit just punched me and said, don't you ever underestimate the power of the Spirit in my people. And I think that was God's mercy for me uh, early to begin to to have more confidence uh, in the Spirit of God among the people of God. I think that's one of the things that uh, if I were to say, please learn from my mistakes, uh, that would be one of the things I would really encourage people who were uh, seeking to be movement practitioners is trust the Holy Spirit in yourself and in the people of God, and especially uh, the empowerment of the Spirit of God in new believers. Uh, they have such underutilized potential uh, I think that uh, it's not to say that they don't need encouragement and guidance and that uh, there isn't a role for an older believer to, to guide them along, but they're, but the, the spirit's power is, is so evident in them uh, as they, as they grow. And I don't want uh, anyone who is seeking to be a, a movement practitioner to uh, quench what the spirit is doing through their own lack of faith. So that was, that was off and running from there. Uh, especially that, uh, that woman, uh, she shared constantly with everyone. She would take different taxi routes to be able to find new people on the taxi routes on the, the, the bus lines, uh, so that she could find new people to share with. And, uh, so she led a lot of people to faith, but she didn't seem to be able to uh, disciple them or gather them into groups. And so we realized that we needed to start pairing her up with, with a guy that wasn't great at evangelism, but was really good at remembering the basic lessons, uh, the milk lesson set that we were, we were training and being able to get other people to remember them and multiply them. And so I would go uh, occasionally and listen to how he would teach the lessons. And then I would take notes. And then in any groups that I was leading uh, or my wife was leading, we would uh, make the adjustments to the way that he did it uh, because that was, it was so clear that he was gifted in making it sticky uh, for the culture so that it would be passed on to multiple generations. Eventually he was somebody that uh, paired a song to each of the milk lesson sets. Uh, and so there was a song that, uh, that was in a, the local style of music and uh, became ways that people worshiped uh, and ways that people remembered uh, the order of the uh, the song of the, the, the lessons and their content. So that was, uh, that was something that was uh, in place within the first six to nine months uh, of our time. There were some other barriers uh, that we, that we came across uh, right around six months, we had a huge wave of persecution 
And it was at a time when we're, where we had to leave the country. Uh, my wife was giving birth and the medical care in, in the country wasn't adequate uh, for my wife's needs. And so we had to leave. And that's when the first huge wave of persecution came through. Uh, one of what, our key leaders, what, did that, uh, what did that persecution look like? Uh, it looked like uh, there was uh, the woman who was um, our big evangelist was uh, forced into a marriage with an unbeliever. Uh, <clears throat> there was uh, two of our leaders were uh, lost their jobs uh, and simultaneously to losing their jobs were kicked out of their homes. Uh, another, uh, another leader tried to share with uh, his, his supervisor at work and the supervisor picked up a piece of rebar um, and to hit him over the head. And he lift up, lifted up his forearm and it shattered both, both bones um, in his forearm. Uh, so, I mean, those were, those were some of the things that, um, that happened, uh, in that time, uh, there were successive waves of persecution, but I think this first one was all of a sudden and without us, uh, that made it hard for us to hear, uh, when we were away, um, we got an email and that was all, you know, there wasn't any other form of communication at that point in time, long distance. Um, and so all we could do was pray and uh, reach out to prayer partners to, to ask for prayer coverage. Uh, there wasn't even any way that we could send in other colleagues from other parts of, of the country to come and help. Um, so they endured that persecution uh, on their own and um, weathered it well. There were definitely... Uh, our sister that uh, was such an incredible evangelist, uh, she had a lot more restrictions on her life and her evangelism was uh, curtailed. Uh, and so there was, in many ways, we felt like um, the evil one had um, had done a good job of crushing her voice uh, and at least diminishing it. Um, and, and that was, that was hard uh, that was, that was an early thing that was, uh, you know, she, we saw such hope in the numbers of people that she was uh, sharing with and bringing to faith. Mm. So, um, yeah. What, I think uh, there were... What happened next? Yeah, go ahead. What happened next? <laughs> <laughs> when, we, uh, when we returned... Uh, one of the things that was a big, uh, so we, we had learned the importance of uh, the word for, for covenant. Uh, the people were Semitic, and so they had a deep understanding um, of, of the word covenant. Uh, to call somebody to belief wasn't sufficient. Uh, I think that's important uh, that I would, I would encourage people who are cross-cultural workers to look for the deepest word for commitment in the culture that they're going to. Uh, because there's, a, there's an assent to belief that, um, that doesn't 
that isn't a uh, a declaration of following of following our Savior. That uh, in many cultures, do you believe this? Yeah, uh, I'll, I believe it, and I'll add it to my pantheon. Uh, I believe it, and uh, I assent that it's one of the things that could be true. Uh, isn't enough. But when you say, "Would you covenant?" Um, uh, would you come under the covering of uh, of Christ's headship of your life? That's that's what uh, in this culture covenanting meant. And so, when we would ask people to follow that uh, to make a covenant, they were immediately um, they would say, "Nope, I'm going to follow this saint or." that that saint uh, or this angel or this uh, this other thing and I'm not going to follow uh, exclusively follow Christ and so even in the the refusal to follow Christ and the refusal to the invitation we knew that we were on the right track as far as uh, calling people to exclusivity of following Christ but uh, this culture uh, was a Christian background culture. And so they were, <laughs> uh, when we called people to baptism, that was an entirely different, uh, entirely different question. So even though we had baptism in our milk uh, discipleship lesson set, uh, there were people that would say, when we get to the point where we would say, so how are you going to obey this lesson? they would say, well, if we have any converts from the majority culture, then we will baptize them. Uh, we'll continue to baptize our babies because, uh, of course, that's what it means. <laughs> like, no, that's not what this lesson means. Um, this, is, this is believer's baptism. Uh, so that was something that was a definite challenge. Uh, without baptism, there can't be formation of church. Um, and so, um, one day about a year in, we had, a over 1500 people that had come to faith and only about 25, uh, had followed in, in baptism. And so I was sitting there on my, on my porch, um, one morning having my quiet time and we had a, uh, a guard, uh, that, tended the garden and, and did other things for us. And he, he was a strong believer and he had actually been trained uh, to become uh, a priest in this, uh, in this Christian background uh, culture. And he sees me and all of a sudden I just feel this overwhelming um, sense of grief that, that the church isn't being formed uh, among the people that there are lots and lots of people coming to faith and even being discipled, but there isn't the church being formed. And I start to weep and he walks over to me and he says, brother, why are you, why are you weeping? And I, I share with him and he said, well, let us, um, this is what we should do. We should, we should pray together and then we should study the word together. And so we did that. And over the next, uh, throughout the day, we just looked at different, uh, passages, and <clears throat> he said, okay, I know exactly what we need to do uh, to change the, the, the discipleship lesson on baptism. <clears throat> and I said, okay, 
Uh, he said, but I have to go tonight class. I'm, I'm a student. He was a student and it was time for him to end his shift and go to, to night school. And so he, he left and he said, I'll bring you the lesson tomorrow, which was great because the next day I had somebody were a group that was on the discipleship lesson on baptism. And so he came back and he says, here's, here's the lesson. I looked at it and he had added four sentences to the beginning of it. And then he had added uh, the precedent of uh, in Acts 19 of the Ephesian 12 that are rebaptized. Mm-hmm. So they were baptized in the repentance baptism of John, and then they're rebaptized once they have a saving knowledge of, of Christ uh, by the Apostle Paul. So he had added that, and then he had added uh, the birth narrative uh, from Luke. Mm. So at the eighth day, uh, according to the custom or the covenant of Moses, Christ was circumcised. And on the 40th day after birth, his mother cleansed herself of the birth blood by offering the proper sacrifices according to the law of Moses. And then Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. And when he was 30 years old, he was baptized in the Jordan River. I said, okay, that's all you want to add to this lesson? Okay. So I went and I uh, shared the lesson and I asked the seven young men who were in that discipleship group, what do you need to do to obey this lesson? And they said, we've got to go be baptized right now. Wow. That's like, really, really? Uh, and that uh, that was something which uh, right around that time we had had enough leaders that were multiplying groups that uh, we had started to do training about every six months of these leaders because they were starting to get burned out uh, after about six months of intense ministry. And uh, we realized they needed a time to pull away, to reflect. Uh, We called it a mid-level training retreat. Uh, And because we had that, we could reintroduce this new baptism lesson into all those various leaders and into their streams. And, in every one of them, we saw the same same results. Uh, baptism began to be the norm rather than the exception. So that was about um, about a year, around a year, a year and a quarter in uh, to the beginning of, of movement uh, was when we started to see churches begin to form. It was an ancient church. Uh, that had uh, followed infant baptism all along. Uh, and so it, this, they were, they became uh, a huge part of the persecution uh, mm-hmm. of people. Uh, they would deny you, you can't be buried here anymore. You can't, um, you, you are not participate. You're not able to participate in the local uh, farming uh, farmers cooperatives. So you can't buy fertilizer, uh, because you, you were rebaptized. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of persecution that came through that. The other thing that did happen, however, uh, is as people were baptized and as they were obedient in baptism, persecution would increase 
and miraculous expressions of the spirit of God would increase, which I found very interesting. Uh, there would be far more uh, numbers of demons cast out. Uh, there would be um, at one point uh, the, the believers in one community, uh, one farming community had all of their crops burned and it was just the believers. And uh, no one, the, the local police were called and they didn't really do anything. Uh, the, and there was a particular uh, head uh, elder of this village who was the one who was kind of heading up the persecution. And uh, he had the, the largest land holdings. And around that time, a, a massive hailstorm came through and decimated uh, his, just his field. Just his it's like you could draw a line, just his field. You could draw a line around the edge of where the, where the fields had been hurt. Mm. And right next door, there would be somebody and there hadn't even been one head of grain that had been knocked off. Mm. Uh, so, so an amazing and coincidence. Yes. <laughs> and he, he recognized it and he came and said, uh, pray for me. Mm -hmm. uh, for I have, I have sinned and he who is in you is more powerful than he who is in me. Uh, so they shared the gospel with him. Uh, and he actually, um, had a couple of demons in him that they, they cast out. Uh, and, uh, and the other thing is that next, the valley next door had uh, a bumper crop, heard that their brothers uh, in the valley next to them had had their crops burned and they brought over uh, out of their abundance. And so the, the families that had had their crops burned had plenty to eat that year, uh, despite the fact that they had gone through persecution. So even... Even that brought unity across uh, between two, uh, two communities of believers as they, they heard about one another's need and, and shared everything in common. Yeah, I mean, those are, uh, there, there's so many more stories. Uh, one of my favorites uh, is this, this was another, uh, another it's actually another people group that we were, we were trekking prayer trekking through an area. This is a high mountain area. And, uh, we'd been praying for this area to have, uh, have the gospel move forward in it. And it, it just, it, it was like every time we would try to even get into the area, there would be some kind of barrier, but this time we were able to, to go through with a, a volunteer group who was, uh, praying, with us we came to the edge of this little village and this uh this girl was playing uh, a flute for her goats uh she says stops playing she's like would you come to my house for a cup of for a, for a coffee ceremony and so we said oh sure this other woman comes running out and says no 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 some of you come to my house so we were uh, 
uh, a sizable group. Uh, and so we said, sure. So I sent my national partner and translator with the first uh, shepherd girl. And then I went with this other one. We went into her house. Uh, and my experience was, okay, this is, this is exactly not a person of peace. So <laughs> uh, she's giving us this coffee ceremony and she's like, takes about five or six coffee beans and roast them on the, on the, on the little griddle. And then she's uh, gives us just a tiny handful of popped grain to go with it. And it's this weak coffee. And I start looking for an opportunity to share uh, the gospel. And finally, I'm just saying, so this is why we have come is to tell you these, this story. And uh, I share the story, creation to Christ all the way through. And I say, so what do you think you need to do to obey this story? She says, uh, we need to pray to Muhammad five times a day. Uh, and uh, that's, that's what we need to do. So, <laughs> so she said, I was like, well, that's actually not what you're supposed to do to obey. Um, not only was her hospitality not lavish, but it was, it was like the neighbor came in, uh, the cow stepped on the foot of the volunteer, uh, as we're going into the house and he's in pain, uh, from that. And the, the chickens come into the house and start, uh, squawking and, and crowing and going crazy. It's like everything was not allowing the gospel to move forward. Uh, Meanwhile, and we, so we, we say thank you and we walk out of the house and, and the, the woman says, oh, you forgot to pay me for the coffee ceremony, which is in that culture, an absolute insult. Like you never ask anyone to pay for, uh, for coffee, especially if you've invited them over to your house. So we did. And then we, we said, this is definitely shaking, uh, shaking the dust off of our feet moment in this house, at least. So we went to the, we made our way through the village to find the where the others had gone and we arrive and just as we arrive the the uh, the head of the household uh as we enter into the house says to this little four-year-old boy uh, isa shoo the calf out of the house so it doesn't disturb our our guests um, in this area there's enough wild animals that they sleep with their uh with their animals in the house especially young ones so that the animals don't eat them. So the four-year-old boy takes this little stick and uh, shoes the calf out of the house. Well, of course, we, we pick up on that, uh, especially my, my um, partner and translator picks up on that. And he says, so uh, I noticed that you named your, your son Isa. Uh, why, why did you name him Isa? That's not a very usual name in this part of the country. And uh, he said, before I share with you, be, before you share with me what God has sent you here to share with me, let me tell you a story. Okay. Four years ago, uh, my wife was very pregnant. And uh, in a vision, a man came to me in white and said to me, There, uh, I am Isa. One day I will send to you someone from across the ocean to tell you my story. Believe that man. And as a sign to you that this is true, your wife will give birth tonight. It will be a son. 
name that son after me. And then he said, why did it take you four years to come to me? <laughs> and so uh, we immediately shared the story of the gospel with him. Uh, as soon as we were done uh, sharing, all nine adults uh, in the household stood up and said, what must we do to be saved? Mm -hmm. uh, the contrast in, in the hospitality was also stark. The, in this part of the country, uh, there's a, a, a table that is hand carved out of one piece of wood for, uh, for a wedding uh, present. And you only bring that out to serve your most honored guests. Well, they, he had brought that out. Uh, the main cash crop, uh, in that area was honey. It's famous for its honey. And so he, he served not just a little bit of honey on, on your hand that you would lick off, but like a bowl that overflowed onto fresh baked, baked bread. And, uh, just, it was, uh, lavish hospitality. And so, I mean, that contrast alone uh, showed us that they were, uh, they were not only just receiving the message, but also receiving us as messengers. So we shared some basic stories with them, encouraged them in their faith and uh, how to share uh, the gospel. But we already had an arrangement in another village about a uh, six hour hike away uh, to get there that night. And uh, this was a village that was uh, a Christian background village that was actually uh, having a feud with the village that we were in, where uh, this man, uh, whose son's name was Isa, was, was living. Um, we'll call him Abba Yassim. Uh, Abba Yassim uh, said, please come soon. Please come again soon. I want to know more. Uh, and so we said we, we promised we would, but we had this appointment in their village, uh, which was uh, this uh, Orthodox background, Christian background village. So we arrive after dark and uh, the man who had come to faith in that village actually had been led to faith by his son. His son was uh, somebody that had come to the city where we lived about uh, 10 hours away. Uh, four or five hour hike plus another mm. six hour drive from from there. He had come for a training, and so we we had trained him over the course of this. Uh, he, it had been about a six month course in uh, ecology, and uh, he was going to be become a scout in a new national park that was forming. That six months of training. Uh, he had learned all the lessons he had multiplied uh, himself and formed groups that had become churches. And so when he went back to his father in this, this mountain uh, area, he led his father to faith and his brothers to faith. Uh, and his father was um, a chief village elder and had led about 180 people in that village to faith. And uh, we'll call him Michael. Uh, so Michael um, had, as soon as he had come to faith, he'd asked God to stop the feud between him, his village and the, the Muslim village. 
uh, and he'd been praying for a year. So we go into the village that night and we share the news that in the Muslim village that there was, there were new believers. And he said, finally, God has answered my prayer that, that there would be an opportunity and that we could have peace and that the gospel would go forward to them. He said, so how are they going to learn uh, the lessons from, from the, the scriptures, uh, the lessons about how to, how to follow uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And uh, we said, well, uh, actually, he has no sons who can read. Uh, so we have been praying about how we might encourage uh, him in that. And he went, so um, Michael went from being joyful to being somewhat dejected. We do some discipleship lessons and encouragement with them. And about midnight, we're about ready to go to bed. And Michael says, I have an answer. I have three sons who can read. Uh, one of them, uh, David, uh, he, he will, I will take him and he will become Abba Yassin's son. So the next morning we wake up at 5 a.m., hike back over the mountain six hours to Abba Yassin's village, and these two brothers greet each other, brand new uh, in the faith, and they, Abba, um, Michael says to Abba Yassin, this is your new son. Uh, and so David moved that day and began living with Abba Yassin and in his house and training uh, respectfully, uh, teaching Abba Yassin's household about how to, uh, how to follow their faith and all of the discipleship lessons. The thing is that uh, we didn't know this was a very poor village and they didn't have enough money to pay for uh, a cleric for their eight mosques. And so they, they did Friday preaching by committee and the village elders would, uh, would choose who was going to share whatever they wanted to share that week. Well, Abba Yassim said, well, I'm the head of the, the committee. Um, I'll take it for, for the next few months. And everybody's like, great, good job. You, you go. So whatever David taught him, he would teach at Friday prayers. Six months later on a different visit, there had been a couple of visits in between, but six months later I come in and in this village, there was a natural amphitheater and uh, the people would come out on this, this time they said, so we're going to just have you teach everybody. Really? You want me to teach everybody? So everybody was on the hillside and uh, I was sharing a story and uh, uh, from the basic discipleship set, uh, just uh, proclaiming it up the, the hillside to hundreds of people sitting in the hillside. And I would hear all this whispering. And I said to one of my national partners, can you go see what they're saying? Uh, and so he's like, he came back to me and he said, you know, actually all the stories that you're saying, uh, they are finishing the stories before you do, they know them all. <laughs> and uh, so obviously the, they had uh, done an incredible job of, of sharing. But on that particular visit, this woman comes up to me and I recognize her as the one who had given me the, the worst coffee 
ceremony of my life. Uh, and she says, I, can you please come back to my house? Uh, I would like to give you a proper coffee ceremony. And it wasn't just a coffee ceremony. She laid out a, a feast for us. And she said to me in that, she said, you know, you, you came to me and you shared, you tried to share something with me, but I could not hear it. But when Abba Yasin preached that same thing in, in the Jesus mosque, I could understand it for him. And I think that's, that's a, like, I have never seen something so clearly displayed of the reason that you stay with the man of peace so that out from the man of peace, the whole community can come to faith. That that is, that is the pattern that God has set for entering into a new place, finding the household of peace, and through that household of peace, everyone else has access in a way that they wouldn't have access uh, through you as, as the outsider. How did your role change from when you you first arrived to when you ultimately transitioned out. Um, how did it look different? It, it changed actually rather quickly. Uh, the, the opportunities, uh, I mean, there's, it was a harvest season. And so everywhere we looked, we turned every time we shared that you could, uh, so our predecessors, people who had been working in that part of the world before, might have 200 shares of the gospel and get maybe one yellow light response. I'm interested. We were seeing, um, so as a, as a foreigner, I might see one in 20 come to faith. Uh, but national partners were seeing up to like one in five come to faith uh, that they were sharing with. So it meant that very quickly we needed to move towards leadership development, uh, especially as national partners were being faithful and sharing. Um, we were not looking at doing the, um, the major, I mean, we always shared and we always tried to start new groups uh, that would become churches, but it was very quickly, um, especially as we saw one of our main national partners this was one of those things where um, I, I just, I can't encourage workers enough to prepare ahead of time for the importance of investing in leaders. It's like you, we come uh, and we are so longing for that first believer, that first group of disciples, that first church, that we forget to look down the road to the need to quickly pass off that leadership and, uh, and support that leadership, uh, to move into a supporting of leadership role. Uh, I, uh, there was a young man who, uh, had at one point he was doing 23 groups uh, and he would do them on a two week rotation, uh, one in the morning, one in the evening uh, over the course of a couple of weeks. And he came to me one day and he just said, I'm done. I quit. I'm done. It's too much. I can't do it anymore. 
Um, and of course, you know, we had been writing our prayer letters back about what God was doing through this young man. Uh, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, um, I've been rejoicing in all that God's doing through this young man, but I have not been caring for him. Uh, and I also haven't been coaching him in his releasing of leadership. And so that became, that was a, a big lesson for us. We, oh, um, we immediately took him, uh, myself and, and another um, young man that was a, a, a single guy that was a partner uh, with us on our team. Uh, we went away for a weekend and just gave him a chance to, to sleep the first day because he'd been, you know, he'd been answering all these questions that people had and staying up late at night. Uh, and so we just let him sleep. We spent time uh, in the word and singing and praising God and, and praying uh, over the next three days. And then on the, on the third day, we were able to come and say, okay, what is God's vision? What does God want to do? And we prayed and, and he really opened up a plan for us in how to hand off leadership uh, in those 23 groups. In the end, we, we only lost two of the, of, the, of the groups, but that was a really good lesson for me uh, is we had to shift uh, our emphasis to uh, focusing on that leadership development and encouragement. And so uh, three days a week in, in our house, we had uh, kind of open lunch for those that were leaders and they would show up and sometimes they would stay all afternoon. Um, and then we, um, <clears throat> by the end, uh, we, we were doing about every four months, we would take a leader through a mid-level, uh, training, which would be between three and five days. Uh, and there, Within a, a within every six four to six months, we were running through about seven hundred and fifty to a thousand leaders through mid level trainings, and they underneath them, in order to come, they had to have four generations under them, and so I actually more often than not towards the end they would be like, why is the white guy in the room? Uh, they would be 14. Uh, I met an 18th generation from me, uh, which is great. Um, the last time that I was, uh, the last training that I did, I showed up. Let me back the story up a second. We, one of the things that we had been praying for was uh, with the leaders was um, I wanted them to have a sense of the immensity of the Great Commission. And so we st I said, we should start praying for uh, the Middle East and for um, the deserts of North Africa, areas that just have so little access to the gospel. And so we started praying for uh, those places. And um, it, one night in a, in a mid-level training, we were praying and it was about five hours of prayer that they were praying for the lost among other people groups and other nations. A year later, I showed up and they said, here they are. Here, who are? These are the 26 
young men and women that we want to send to those people. And they all have visas, work visas to go to those countries. They all have passports. Uh, we have paid for the passports. And now you train them in how to do it. That was, that was an amazing answer to prayer. Uh, and uh, I wish I could say that all 26 did great. Uh, there were a lot of lessons to learn there about things that didn't go well. Um, those that went and did well were able to have uh, circumstances where they were able to stay together. So there were four young women that um, went and served as nannies in a single household, uh, and they were able to lead uh, all of the women in that wealthy uh, household to faith uh, because they were they prayed for healing from uh, from breast cancer for the matriarch of that household, and she was healed. And then she said, well, who is this Jesus that you prayed in the name of? And she and all of the, um, her daughters and her daughter-in-laws all came to faith and never made the transfer to the male side of that household, uh, as far as I know. Uh, another one was a group of six men that went into a work camp, uh, construction work camp, and they were able to lead Pakistanis and um, uh, Bangladeshis and others uh, from other parts of the world to faith in that work camp. So there, we have an ongoing relationship, um, but they, they've completely embraced the mission uh, themselves. They, they have it, uh, and so we are looking to where else should we go.